0: If you have your Bibles this morning, go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 27. We're going to start in verse 32. Matthew 27, starting in verse 32. The establishment of a monarch, a king or queen, is a big deal. In recent years, we've been able to see, either live or in recordings, the establishment of certain kings or queens in history. And if you watch Those proceedings, there's often particularly rites and a certain liturgy that has to be performed, a certain procedure that is to be followed. Those events are typically full of signs and symbols and tradition. It's meant to give the witnesses of the event a sense of divine declaration that God has established the monarch, that the crown is there because God has put it there. Often, even in these proceedings, the material objects and even the locations themselves are meaningful. They're meant to raise the eyes of the audience beyond what is visible. Well, this morning, we're going to see an enthronement full of signs, symbols, traditions, and even locations that would force us to see beyond the physical. See, Rome executed many for crimes against the state, but none like this one. What should have just been another run-of-the-mill execution turns out to be far more. Last week, Cooper walked us through the coronation of Jesus in which a crown of thorns is placed on his head, but now we're going to see the enthronement of Jesus, albeit it is an ironic enthronement. Jesus will be lifted up, not as we saw in Psalm 22, on the praises of Israel, but on their mockings and on the cross of Rome. And here we have the centerpiece of history the crucifixion of the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ Himself. Our main idea this morning is simple look to the cross. Look to the cross of Jesus and find life in his death. So let's look at this movement by movement. Let's start in verses 32 to 34 where we'll see the king's procession. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull... They offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. Jesus, after being lashed, beaten, scorned, torn, stripped, humiliated, and reviled, is charged with carrying the burden of the cross to the hill of the skull. Certainly exhausted from a lack of sleep, his body all but completely broken, The weight of death is placed on his shoulders and he is charged to carry it through the street and up the hill. This is a public humiliation of Jesus. Jesus is paraded in front of the crowds and then will be sacrificed on the place of a skull. For his enemies, this was to create no question. He who claims to be the Son of God and those who would identify with this so called Messiah, you can expect to receive the same fate. See, not just by killing Jesus, but by destroying him, the powers that be are aiming at squashing both him and his influence. Yet we have this odd encounter, don't we? A man by the name of Simon of Cyrene, which is in northern Africa, he just coincidentally happens to be along this path. And the text tells us that he is compelled or conscripted or voluntold by the soldiers, hey, come and help carry the cross of this man. And it shows us a couple of things. One, it shows us the brutal torment that Jesus has already undergone, right? He is unable to carry the beam of the cross. He has been beaten and flayed within an inch of his life, And this would have been even beyond the typical procedure amongst Roman executions. But I think secondly, it tells us something about Simon. So here we have Simon by name, but then we also have him show up in Mark and in Luke. And in Mark, he records the names of both of his sons, Rufus and Alexander. Now this could just be a historical anecdote, or it could be something more. See, this man just happens to be in Jerusalem at the time of the Passover, happens to be on the route that Jesus has taken, happens to be picked out from the crowd as one who would help Jesus carry the cross. It just happened this way, didn't it? But no. What do we know about Simon other than his name and the name of his two sons? We know that he carried the cross of Christ. For the rest of the age and to the end of eternity, Simon will be remembered as the man who picked up the cross of Jesus. What a legacy. To be remembered for eternity, for carrying the cross of Jesus, there is no greater prize than to be identified with the suffering Messiah. J.C. Ryle puts it this way, there can be no doubt that God intended to remind us that we are of no rank and estimation in ourselves, and that it is only from the cross of his Son that we derive eminence and renown. What's even more shocking, maybe, is that Simon wasn't even looking for it. Right? He's pulled from the crowds and meets Jesus and carries his cross. So I'm not trying to make a point on whether I think Simon is a believer or not. The text doesn't tell us. I think there's evidence to suggest that he might be, but we don't know for sure. What we do know is that this man encountered Jesus, met him face to face, and carried his cross. Are you here this morning uninterested in the things of Jesus? Would you be counted as a spectator on the side of the road as I'm describing his crucifixion? Are you just kind of watching as he passes by? Could it be this morning that all of the coincidences in your life that have led you here, it is so that you would meet the Savior too for the first time face to face. And that you, for the first time in your life, would pick up his cross. Jesus himself says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and pick up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life would lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. See, Simon took up the cross of Jesus and he was repaid by giving a name that will last for eternity in the word of God. So this is the king's procession out to the hill. Verses 35 and on we see the king's enthronement. Look at verse 35. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments amongst them by casting lots. Then they sat down to keep watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one to the right and one to the left. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Verse 35 is a bit jarring, isn't it? The way Matthew just casually says, and when they had crucified him. Since we love our movies, we love vivid Depictions. We love pictures that we can see, right? So in some sense, I think we approach this text and we want a cinematic description of what's going on. We almost want to hear the hammer nailing the nails into the flesh of Jesus. We almost want Matthew to describe the grunting of the soldiers as they lift the weight of Jesus and the cross into its place. We almost want to hear and hear Matthew describe the Painful cries of Jesus as he begins his slow, painful, torturous suffocation. But this is all we get. And when they had crucified him. It's actually not until verse 46 that we actually get attention back turned to Jesus. Instead, Matthew focuses on what's happening around the cross. And I think there's two reasons for Matthew doing this. We get less of a description of the crucifixion and more a description of the activity going on. First, Matthew's original audience wouldn't have been unaware on what crucifixion was. They would have cringed, their skin crawling at the very word, because for many of them, they had seen it. They had heard the cries. They had seen the brutality. They had watched death slowly come to many over time. And so they would have witnessed it. They would have understood it. In other words, they didn't need a clinical description merely by, and when they had crucified him, they would cringe. But more than that, I think Matthew is showing us what is happening around the cross is a fulfillment of Psalm 22. As Caleb read for just a moment ago, Psalm 22:16, 16, For dogs encompass me. A a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. How blind all that those around Jesus are. Those of the Jews who had professed to be longing for the son of David are now watching him killed by Rome. And the Romans themselves, they remove his clothes to maximize his shame. And then they take his clothes and they use it as a prize for their game of chance. They begin casting lots. But isn't it a great sense of irony that the casting of lots, maybe the most random thing that we can imagine, is the fulfillment of 1,000-year-old prophecy that all of these encircled Jesus are calling for his death and even using his clothes as a pawn in their game. See, the Jewish leaders are clothing in their cleverness, that they have conspired with Rome to put to death their so-called enemy. But what they fail to see, all of them, is the hand of God superintending it all. See, friends, there is no chance with God Almighty Even the death of his own son. Peter himself confesses this in Acts chapter 2. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Yet the irony only increases. Placed above Jesus is the list of his crimes. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. See, the prophecy that's being fulfilled here in Psalm 22, we have David the king speaking of Yahweh, enthroned on the praises of Israel, and here we have the king of the Jews enthroned on the mockery of Israel and the cross of Rome. And don't forget how often throughout Jesus' ministry, he strikes fear in his opponents, right? This is a characteristic we often forget, that when Jesus would speak with authority or he would demonstrate his power, people would cower in fear before him. Yet it is now that he's torn and brutalized and emaciated and bound and pierced. Now they feel like they can speak their mind. They're like jackals pecking at the heels of a wounded lion. And notice the language here. You have the Romans who are mocking Jesus at his feet. But then you have the Jews who seemingly have turned themselves around with their back to the cross facing the crowd. Look again at verse 41. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires for he has said, I am the son of God. How deceived they are. To be almost word for word quoting the Psalm of David, to curse their own Messiah. See, they're jubilant about what they've accomplished. They're mocking him. See, the scriptures tell us that God does not delight in the death of the wicked. But what does it mean for someone to delight in the death of the righteous? How deceived these men are. Saying things like, How much, how weak he must be if he cannot save himself. How little regard does God give him if he does not rescue him. How unloved he must be if he claims to be a king but has no people. How wicked he must be to be crucified with robbers and mocked and reviled even by them. Here, friends, is the king's enthronement. The son of David receiving the fulfillment of the prophecy of David. But where David was rescued from his suffering... His son is subjected to it without rescue. This is his enthronement. Now let's turn to the king's death. Verse 45. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani. That is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. See, sin has a veiling effect. It would prevent us from seeing the true nature of reality. In downtown Louisville, Kentucky, where Katie and I used to live, in 2015, there was a row of buildings called Whiskey Row that began to burn. And on this road, each of these buildings had a facade that faced the street. And as the news coverage was filming the events, there were certain angles that if you didn't see the emergency vehicles, just looking at the facade of the building, everything seemed to be fine. But once the fire began to break through the windows in the front, you began to see really what was going on. See, at the cross of Jesus, there is a facade over the situation. That this was Rome successfully squashing yet another rebellion. That this son of a carpenter from Nazareth turned resistance leader has met his inevitable end. Yet that facade begins to break it cannot hold back the signs that that is not the whole picture. It tells us that from the sixth hour to the ninth hour, about three hours, darkness covered the land. See, at the birth of Jesus, we see a supernatural and celestial light. But at the death of Jesus, we see a supernatural darkness as the heavens themselves are darkness darkened. As we sing, darkness is rejoicing as though heaven is loosing. The veil is being torn back. Reality is showing forth. This is not the death of any mere man. And then Matthew brings us back to Jesus. Verse 46, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lima sabachthani," which means God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, Jesus cries out and he testifies to the true state of things. What is happening at this moment transcends all physical pain and suffering. Surely no one has ever experienced the physical and emotional torment that Jesus is experiencing. His torture is without equal in the human experience. Yet here we see there is more going on. Jesus is not just dying he is experiencing hell. Jesus is enduring the wrath of his father. And at the last hour in his humanity loses all sense of the presence, the goodness, and the favor of his father. So much for, so he doesn't even refer to him as father. That's why they're confused. They're hearing him saying, Eli, Eli, which means God. But they might think he's referring to Elijah. But Jesus is testifying to the fact that the Father has turned his face away. But forbid us from speaking of this as an academic exercise. Prevent us from doing this as just a suit or pursuit of good theology. Why would the Father turn his face away? Because the Son became like us. Second Corinthians 5:21, "For our sake, for our sake." He made him to be sin who knew no sin. 1 Peter 2.24, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Here, friends, the perfect spotless lamb bore your sins on the cross. The son asked the father a question, Why have you forsaken me? Well, if the father had answered audibly, he might have said, Because you're covered in their sin. You're covered in the sin of that man that will live in Abilene, Texas. You're covered in the sin of that mom with those three kids. You're covered in the sin of that son or daughter. You're covered with their lust, their greed, their pride, their lies, their faithlessness, their disobedience, their violence, their debauchery, their treachery, their anger, their bitterness, their envy, their quarrels, and their idolatry. You are wearing the sins of the people, and therefore I cannot be with you. Even if you know this, you need to be reminded. The Son of God was put to death as a substitute for your sin. Because of your disregard for God, your disregard for his word and his ways, the Son was put to death in your place. Jesus experienced the wrath of God for you, his perfect, spotless, blemishless life for your wretched and broken one. This exchange, Jesus took on himself out of love. And we see that Jesus cries out to him and there's a variety of responses here, right? Some, Some go and try to offer him a drink. Some say, wait, 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 let's see if something might happen if Elijah were to come down and save him. But then the life of Jesus comes to an end as he yields up his spirit. Notice verse 50 says the same thing that Jesus himself does. No one takes his life. But Jesus has the authority to lay it down. Jesus yielded up his spirit. And he did not lay it down one second too early. He endured the full cup of wrath to the bitter dregs. In full authority and submission, Jesus surrenders to death. Death. The body and soul of Jesus are separated because for the wages of sin is death. Jesus took on that death that we earn for ourselves. He took on the death that was not his and paid for it out of his own account by his own blood. Not a sin to his name, yet from his riches he poured out his blood on we who are poor. And then a couple of things happen in short order. Creation shudders. the earthquakes as its maker bows his head. But also something astounding occurs. Look at verse 51 again. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn into from top to bottom. What is this curtain? Why does it find itself in the middle of this narrative? Well, this curtain actually began all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. At the garden, Adam and Eve in their sin are expelled from the garden. But God prevents them from coming back and taking of the tree of life so that they would not ex- exist eternity, in eternity in their lost state. And what is he set at the edge of the garden but an angel? an angel to guard away, an angel that says it is not safe for you to go into the presence of God. And then in the tabernacle and then the temple, what does God call them to do? To sew a curtain and inlay in that curtain the picture of a cherubim, an angel. As a reminder, it is not safe for you to go into the presence of God. One of my favorite children's books is called The Garden of the, uh, the garden, the curtain, and the cross. And in it, it reminds us that the point of the curtain is to say, because of your sin, you cannot go in. This curtain reminds us that it is dangerous for sinners to go into the presence of God because what will we find there? We will find wrath and punishment. We will find justice But at the death of Jesus, this curtain is torn. Not from the bottom up, but from the top down. A sign of a divine action in which God is renting this curtain into. To create a way into the most holy place. To create a way for sinners to enter the presence of God. See, in Jesus... We have the combination of humanity and divinity. We have this combined. What does the writer of Hebrews tells us that Jesus is? Hebrews 10, 19 and 20. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. See, there was a barrier between us and God. But that barrier was bridged in the body, death, and resurrection of Christ. Jesus, in his death, satisfies the just requirement of God that sin must be defeated and punished. And by doing so, he creates in his body a sure and eternal pathway to God. And this is shown by what Matthew accounts for next in this odd sentence. Look at verse 52. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Now this is an odd phrase to be sure, and it's just kind of packed in here. But it's possible that Matthew's audience had interacted with some of these people. And so, what is Matthew doing but narrating their experience for them? He's pointing out the repercussions of the vicarious death of Christ. As one person put it, before the cross, people were saved on credit, they were offering sacrifices in hopes that one day the payment would come in full. In in essence, what Old Testament Israel is saying is that, Lord, by faith, I'm going to trust that one day the money's going to be in the bank. This animal cannot cover my sins, but I'm going to trust that you're going to make a way. So I'm going to put this down as an IOU, but God, you're going to have to pay it. And then we on the other side of the cross, what are we saying? We're saying the money is in the bank The sacrifice of Jesus filled it full so that we can take credit for what was his. So what's happening here? Well, I think Matthew is showing us that Jesus' death accomplished both of these ends. And he's kind of previewing here, right? Because this doesn't happen actually until the resurrection. But what he's saying here is that the death of Christ accomplished what the old covenant could not. The death of Jesus is the sure and final stamp of God's wrath on sin, so that all who put their faith in God's promised Messiah, both Old Testament and new, find life in his name. See, Jesus rose from the dead, and he threw the door between this life and the next so wide that people already in the next life fall back through And this is the king's death, his glory in his humiliation. And lastly, we have the king's witnesses. Look in verse 54. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly this was the Son of God. There were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him among who were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Finally, we have Matthew then going back to the people around the cross and the witnesses of the crucifixion. First, we have this centurion, this Roman guard, who watches what occurs and he must confess, truly this was the Son of God. I don't presumed to think that Matthew is saying that this Roman became a Christian on that day. But what he at least is saying is that even a pagan like a Roman soldier knew that reality was much more than what was being told. This was no ordinary rebel. This was no thorter of Roman authority. This was the Son of God. And then you have these women These women who are the witnesses of the crucifixion. Their friend, their leader, their Messiah. See, the death of Jesus is the death of hope for these women. These women are the last of his disciples to remain loyal to him. They remained with Jesus to the bitter end. And when he cries out at the end and yields up his spirit... I am certain they felt like they died with him because these women had risked everything for Jesus and he had given everything for them. And Matthew honors these women, right? He tells us how far they had come, but not only that, but that these women, what did they do? They ministered to him. See, these women have a legacy of serving Jesus refreshing Jesus, honoring Jesus, worshiping Jesus. Even the mother of James and John, who once asked a very foolish question for Jesus, is found here. And so as he dies, I'm sure they felt like they die. But these women, they're actually honored for their faithfulness. They receive a prize for their suffering. And what is it? that they're the first to see and announce the risen Messiah. It wasn't a governor, a centurion, a priest, a scribe, or even an apostle who announced first the resurrection of the Messiah. It was these women. Women who were often disregarded in their day are now the first heralds of the rising of the king. So, this is the king's enthronement. And his death. So, what must you do? You must too be a witness of the king. You must become a witness to the cross. And that begins first by looking upon the son in your stead. You must identify with him in his death so that he would give you his life. His cross is the cure for your disease. See, the danger of our age, the danger of the temptation of our hearts, is that we misidentify the problem. And therefore, we don't know where to look for the solution. And remember that sin has a veiling effect. It might have you believing that there is no God or no authority above you that you're accountable to, and so you can just live the way that you want. Or maybe that veil has you believing that there is a God, but there is no enmity, there is no barrier, there is no curtain that exists between you and him. Friend, won't you see reality for the first time this morning? Won't you look beyond that facade and know that you are dead in your trespasses and sins? Won't you see this morning for the first time, that this is a real historical event. This was a real man, but also really the eternal Son of God in the flesh. Won't you see now that there is nothing in your life to please the God of your creation? The God to whom, because of your sin, you owe an infinite debt. Won't you see that by your sin, you are finding yourselves amongst the crowd below the cross? that your actions and words mock the Messiah on the cross, that you are wagging your head with them, that you're joining in their mockery? Won't you see the cost of your sin and transgression is the Son of God on the cross? But won't you see also that the debt you can't afford has been paid in full? Like a king who sits down on his throne and makes a declaration of his rule, So Jesus says with his last breath, it is finished. The king has accomplished his purposes. Won't you look to him and live for the first time? Christian, for you, it's quite simple. Do the same. Sit down here and gaze. Gaze at the cross. It is in the cross that you find salvation. Do not stop looking. Never stop. It is here that the love and grace of God is poured out for you. When you feel tempted to sin, look to the cross and remember the terrible price that your sin costs. When you're content, look to the cross and be filled with thanksgiving. Know that all good things were purchased for you in him. Remember, when you're racked with guilt, look to the cross and remember that the cords of that burden were cut on the hill of Golgotha. When you're going to God in prayer, look to the cross and remember that even your prayers are covered in the blood of the Messiah. When you're tempted to despair, look to the cross and remember that Jesus was forsaken so that you would never be left forsaken. When you're seeing fruit in your life, look to the cross and remember that all of that fruit finds its root in Golgotha. When you're tempted to take your own life, look to the cross and see that Jesus gave up his to purchase yours. And when you are at death's door, look to the cross and see that the enemy's greatest weapon of terror was put to an end for all time. I think it's striking here that on this hill, in front of this crowd, there are two sermons being preached, one by the Jewish leaders and one by the cross behind them. See, they say, if you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. But the cross behind them says, Jesus loves his Father to the point of death, even death on a cross. They say, he saved others, he cannot save himself. The cross says, he would not save himself so that he could save others. They say, let God deliver him now if he desires him. The cross said, God did not deliver him because he desires you. Christian, the cross of Christ is your life. Gaze wonder, think, dwell, meditate on it until it fills your mind and your heart. See, it is in the death of Christ that we find life. All those years ago in Eden, God prevented them from coming to the tree to find life. And here on the hill, Satan assumes that he's one. But where has God planted this new tree of life? At the top of the skull of death itself. Would you look and find life in his death?